You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. God's 7,000 year plan and how it affects you. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphian Video. God's plan and the outworking of it, recorded in Genesis, establishes a blueprint for future events. All the types and all the shadows conforming to the blueprint. This will continue until the end of the 7,000 years. The importance of of understanding that God, the almighty creator of everything that we see around us, has a plan for all that he has created. Now, before we get too far, I'm going to give away the end of the story before we start on the beginning, and then we'll come back to the beginning. The end of the story is that God's desire for this earth, God's desire for us as human beings, is to have a family. It's to have sons and daughters. It's to have people who will reflect his character, glorify him who he can love, and who can love him in return. Now, this is a pretty special idea because all around us in the world, we see breakdowns in relationships, in families, in marriages, in father, son, mother, daughter, all these relationships. And and what God wants to institute across the whole earth is an eternal and a perfect family environment. Now we're going to go back to right at the beginning where, where plans start. Plans always start. So plans always start with a blueprint. And God is no different. God, when he was putting together his plans for the earth, He had a blueprint. He had a blueprint so that he could share it with us, so that we could understand a little bit about what was going on across this 7,000-year plan that he has for us. And one of the first things to understand is that with a blueprint, you've always got to have a scale, a scale to understand what's on paper or what the plan is and how that actually translates into real life. So the blueprint that God's put together has a scale also. Second of Peter 3 and verse 8 says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so, this is the context of, of, of people in the time of, of Peter's day questioning the veracity of God's plan. So he says, look, get outside of what's happening here and now. Understand that God has a greater plan, and that plan has a scale thousand years to a day and a day to a thousand years. And the same thing we have written for us in the Psalms. He actually says in Psalm 90 and verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So what he's saying is a a 24-hour period, a yesterday, a watch in the night, is as a thousand years with God. And this is in the context of God's consistency through all generations. So when we look at the blueprint of God, we have 
the scale identified for us. A thousand years is to a day, as a day is to a thousand years. So it's a one and one thousand ratio, a one and one thousand scale. And when we start looking at the days of creation and what took place in the days of creation, we actually have a blueprint of what God was going to do over the next thousand year period. Now, we're actually living right towards the end of that six thousandth year or the sixth, sixth day and the sixth millennia, the six thousand year period. But we're going to backtrack. We're going to see how the blueprint that God gave us in Genesis 1 has translated into reality across history. Now, I'm going to put some dates up on the board. These dates are not based on AD or BC. These dates are based on 0 to 6,000. So when you see a date or, or a time period, please understand that this is going from uh, the day of creation or, or the beginning of time being 0 and then upwards towards 6,000. Just to give us context as to where the events are taking place in God's blueprint. <coughs> so let's dive in. We've got day one. And as our chairman read for us, day one is all about the separation of light and darkness. And so God saw this earth that was without form and void and he instituted light and he called the light day and the darkness night. Now in the first millennia, we have identified throughout the rest of the Bible that light is often referring to the word of God. So in Psalm 119 and verse 105, it actually specifically says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And this is a theme that goes all the way through the Bible. And when we start looking at the Bible, what we'll understand is that there's a key. There's a lot of different themes or a lot of different words or a lot of different ideas or, or um, imagery that relates to something else. And so that key is important to understand as we start looking and becoming familiar with the Bible. And, and one of those keys is that light often translates into the word of God. And so the, the identification of the first millennia was all about light and darkness those who would dwell in the light with the word of God and those who were happy and content to dwell in darkness. And unfortunately, as we read through the story of Genesis, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, who was content to dwell in darkness, who didn't want to come into the light and do as God asked. And Abel, who was a light dweller, who was listening and responding to the word of God. And Cain, unfortunately, out of jealousy, slew his brother. We have another individual, Lamech, who is the same, who, who he thought, well, if, if Cain was cursed for slaying some other man, then I should be cursed as well because I've actually killed another man to my hurt. And so Lamech was also, and, and these are the, the, the key themes that are coming out in the first thousand year period, which is covered literally by about two chapters um, in the Bible. Um, it's this idea of light and darkness. And Seth lived from the time period, uh, who, was, who was a man who, who um, was another son of Adam and Eve. He, he came onto the scene and he started to call upon the name of the Lord, it says. And so he lived from when Adam had him at 130 years, all the way through to his death at 1,042 years. So he was the epitome of that first millennia period, where you had light and darkness. Those who 
There we go. Those who dwelt in light and those who dwelt in darkness. Now, one of the key things that's really important to understand is that the climax of God's plan, the, the, the anchor point that he's working with is in fact Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that as we come into day four. But what we want to do is we want to link light to Jesus Christ, because that's what God does for us as we read through the Bible. So if you'll turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the second of Corinthians chapter four (coughs) and verse six, where we read, and, and the writer of this book, the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, is, is hearkening back to that day of creation where he says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this idea of illumination, this idea of light and the word of God very heavily translates and links into the personage of Jesus Christ. So we're really running through this, aren't we? That's the first thousand year period. Now we're on to the second thousand year period where we've got water. Now, one of the interesting things about the way that God works is he often works in patterns, themes, symbols. And as we go through the days of creation, what you'll see is a repetition of themes. In day one, light. Day two, water. Day three, earth. In day four, we've got light again. In day five, we've got water again. And in day six, we've got the earth again. One is the creation of it, and one is the population of it. So he populates the heavens with the sun, the moon, and the stars. He populates the water with the fish and and brings the fowl out of them, and he populates the earth with the beasts, the creeping things, and eventually human beings. There's also this idea uh, of, of a theme that God uses throughout the days of creation and throughout the millennia of history of separation or distinction or division. And so we saw on day one, the division of light and darkness, that separation or the distinction. In day two, we're going to see a division of waters. And as our chairman read for us, we had a water above and a water below. There was a firmament and there was a separation of water above and water below. And in the second millennia, there was a great event. A great event where waters above and waters below flooded the entire earth. And and what basis was it that God decided to flood the earth? Well, it was a continuation of that theme of the division of light. Those who walked with God, like Enoch and Noah, who lived in this second millennia, who dwelt in light with God, and those who, unfortunately, gave their lives over to the commitment of violence and corrupted themselves. And so you have a separation of water, those above who are dwelling with God and those below who are making up the nations or or the peoples of the earth. And there's a separation of light and a separation of water. And in Genesis 6 and verse 11 to 13, we're specifically told at the time of the flood, that it was the water above from the heavens and the waters from the deep that were broken up that flooded the earth. And it's the same language that God has used right back in his blueprint. 
in the second day, the day of water, the creation and the separation of water. And so the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Uh, sorry, I said Genesis 6 because I was looking at the wrong verse. It's Genesis 7 in verse 11. The fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened, the water above and the water below. And so this time period, this millennia, was identified by people who separated themselves to God or away from God, and then God using water to destroy the earth and to repopulate it and replenish it. Then we get on to day three. Day three, which is all about land and fruitfulness and seeds after their kind. And so in day or in the third millennia, we actually have a beautiful story that commences in Genesis chapter 12 of a man named Abraham. <laughs> Abraham lived uh, 2,123 years after the, the day that um, Adam and Eve went out of the garden. Um, and God makes Abraham a fruitful father of a new nation, the nation of Israel, in this millennia. And we see that there's links back to, again, the language that God uses in Genesis, uh, sorry, in Genesis 1 with the days of creation. And he's going to give land to Abraham. That's his promise, which is day three. It's all about land. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. All families of the earth will be blessed in you. So it's this idea of multiplying, which we see in Genesis 13, when, when these promises that God gave to Abraham, what we call the Abrahamic covenant, is expanded a little bit further. He says, for the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. The, the ones that come after bearing the same, which is what God did in day three. He created fruitful trees that had the fruit that bear seed that creates more fruit similar. Abraham was going to have children that also became like him, representing God and his glory. And it's specifically a promise of the land and the seed. And I will make thy seed as the dust, again, reference to the earth or the land, the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be numbered. Arise and walk through this land that I've created for you in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto you. And so this period of time, this third millennia, is identified by the promises given to Abraham, the promise of land, of fruitfulness, and eventually a nation that can be a fruitful body for God. Now we've come into the fourth millennia. We're really tracking through history quite quickly. Now, obviously, a lot of things happened in history across that three, four, five thousand year periods that we're discussing. But the things that are most important are the ones that God has identified in the Bible. The things that draw us out of the nations, that separate us to the light, that separate us to the waters above, that separate us to be the seed of Abraham. These are the things that God focuses on in the Bible. Everything else that's happened in history is not really relevant to the end result of what we want to see, which we said right at the beginning is becoming the sons and the daughters of God. And so we have day four, the sun, the moon, 
and the stars. And again, these are signs. These are symbols. These are tokens, as that same word signs is used later on in the Bible. The token of the rainbow that God used after the flood, it's the same word. It's a sign or the token of circumcision that God gave to Abraham to show him that he had a strong relationship with him, a covenant and a bond. That's the same word. So these sun, moon, and stars are signs, symbols, they're tokens of how God is going to interact with people. And this day is a really, really special day <laughs> because the sun is the light that already existed in the Bible, because we saw on day one that the light was actually existing before the presence of the sun. But now the sun is the body from which the light comes. So the light now has a body. And in Revelation 22 and verse 16, we actually read that Jesus himself says that he is the great and morning star. He is the symbol of the sun. And so in day four, we're introduced to a body that the light exudes from. We have in John 1, turn with me please to the Gospel of John, where we have um, this transition from day one, where the light exists, to day four, where the light receives a body. We'll start reading at verse one. John 1, verse 1 to 5, in the beginning was the word. Now, this word, word, is a really special word. It's actually the Greek word logos, and it has the idea of a plan and a purpose. This is the blueprint of God. And right in the beginning was the plan, the purpose of God. And the word was with God, and the word was inseparable from who God was and his character. He was, or the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The plan for Jesus Christ, as we'll see, was right back in the beginning of time with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's the same language that exists in day one, that that creation of light. But then we're going to jump forward to to John 1 verse 14, because we see that that light became a body and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So now the only begotten of the Father, the body from which the light comes, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Son, in symbol, in the fourth millennia, is the representation of Jesus Christ in the blueprint. And Jesus was born, as we know, at that transition, although the dates are not exact, that transition from B.C. to A.D., around the culmination of the fourth millennia. And so the sun is the body from where the light comes. The interesting thing about what God put in in institution of the signs of the sun is that the sun is not always seen. There's a period of time where the sun shines and then there's a period of time where the sun doesn't shine, where the sun isn't visible 
to the earth, or to at least half the earth. And so we have those symbols that rule the night, we're told, the moon, which reflects the sun's light. And it's a proof that the sun still exists, even though we can't see it. As we were coming down the hill tonight, we saw this beautiful sunset. And it was literally, I got my phone out as we were coming down the hill. Amanda was driving. Don't worry, I'm not getting my phone out. <laughs> Um, so I'm, we're coming down the hill, get the try to take a photo, and the trees are in front of us. And as we come around the trees, the sun is just, just literally dropped down beyond the horizon. So it was still a nice photo, but it wasn't as powerful as what it was uh, when we were first coming down the hill. And so the sun is going to disappear for a period, and the moon and the stars are going to be the proof of the sun's existence, the reflection of the light of the sun, as the moon is and then the individual stars. And these, as we read, are all signs. And what we read in Daniel is that these lights that rule the night, these individual lights, are they that shall be wise, will shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And so we have these symbols of Jesus Christ in the sun, of a body that reflects his light, in the moon, and that's a body of people who love and believe him. But then as the night sky grows dark, the individual people who are out there trying to be righteous in the dark sky, those that shine, or as that word is, that teach of Jesus Christ in his light. And so these are all symbols of Christ, his body, those who love him as an as a, as a, uh, organized body, and then the individuals who love, who love him even in his absence while it is dark. And so these symbols are really special in day um, four. And the stars are scattered across the dark sky. They're the individual lights across the dark sky. And in Acts 8, verse 1, the period of time immediately after the ascension of Christ, which is which is the time period that we're crossing over into, start of the fifth millennia, those individual, the individuals who made up that, that greater body, that organized body of Christ, are driven off to all parts of the earth through the persecution that started over the Christians after Christ's ascension. And so it's the work of individuals across the night sky. And then, that, sorry, shouldn't be there yet, it was supposed to pop up later, my apologies. I obviously didn't animate it. Then we've got day five, the fish and the fowl. And again, there's a separation of the fifth and of the fish and the fowl in the fifth day. This is gonna be a tongue twister for me. Um, so in the fifth millennia, we see that the seas are filled with, with sea creatures, namely the great whale, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we also see that there's a separation of those creatures. Again, the creatures from below in the seas to the creatures above that are flying in the air, the fowl. And as we, as we said, the only specific creature that's named is this idea of the great whale. Now, one of the things to understand, this symbolic key that we have again in the blueprints of God all the way through the Bible, is that the seas are often a representation of the nations, the nations who are, who are dwelling below without the influence of God. 
And in Isaiah 17, verse 12, it says, Woe to the multitude of many peoples, which make a noise like the noise of the seas and the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. And there's a number of quotes that represent or, or that show that the seas are a representation of the multitudes of people, the world around us, the, the political realms and all those that are in them without the influence of God. And yet there is a group that is, that is put up into the heavens with wings that is separated from the nations, that is flying above with God. Now, as we mentioned, there is this, that's when this beast was supposed to show up. There is this great whale that's named. Now, this is a really interesting insight that God had right back at the beginning of, of creation into what was going to take place after the ascension of Jesus Christ. This great whale, otherwise known as the great dragon, that's what the, the Hebrew word is. It's a dragon, not a whale, it's a dragon. It's, it's a giant serpent. And in Revelation 12, verses 14 to 17, we have identified for us, and if you'd like to chat a little bit further about this afterward, please feel free to come and speak to me, um, because it's a, a big topic in itself, but we're just scratching the surface. You have this, this system that arose after the ascension of Christ that was persecuting his body of believers, the, the moon, which caused that, that um, scattering across the night sky. And this system is known as a dragon. It's a, it's a pagan dragon that eventually actually becomes a pagan Christian system under Constantine, who lived uh, three... 30 AD or thereabouts, 339, I think. Um, and so there's this system that is that is known in the Bible as a dragon, and it's known in Revelation 12, verse 14 to 17, as a dragon that's, that's a sea-based dragon. It's coming up out of the water at the beginning of Revelation 13, and it's persecuting those with wings who are trying to fly above, the, those who are, who are identifying with Christ. And you also have this similar language which is used throughout the Bible. Again, the key that we can work on in Ezekiel 29 verse 3 and in Jeremiah 51 and verse 34, you have other um, world leaders at the time, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So Pharaoh in Egypt and Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who were known as dragons, who were persecuting God's people. And so this is now the period of time, the fifth millennia, where the dragon system is there to persecute the people, the believers of God who are associating themselves with Christ and trying their best to fly above the nations. And then we get into day six and this, this, this introduction of land-based animals, beasts, as we're told in Genesis 1. So there's beasts of the earth that are created prior to the creation of man. And in the sixth millennia, we have... Um, the dominion of beasts, earth-based beasts, as we read through Revelation in Daniel. Beasts that ruled the earth in Daniel 7. And again, if you'd like to chat with me after um, for a deeper uh, look into Daniel 7, would be more than happy to. But just scratching the surface, you've got Daniel 7, which talks all about the beasts that are ruling the earth and the way that God describes the world governments that we see all around us today aptly is that they are beasts vying for territory and power, instinctively doing things rather than 
associating themselves with God. And so there's, um, in Revelation 17, the time period immediately prior to the return of Christ, there is a battle, and that battle starts with a harlot riding on the back of a beast in symbol. And in Revelation 13, and behold, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now this is an earth-based beast. Whereas before we had a sea-based beast at the beginning of Revelation 13, it said that this beast was coming out of the sea. So there's the transition into day six. And he had a horn or two horns like a lamb, and he spake as the dragon. So he was still speaking with the same language and the same instinct as the dragon in day five. And so now we have a bunch of systems that are fighting against each other for territory across the earth. Until, until the dominion of the Son of God, until the creation of God's Son. In the case of the blueprint, it was the creation of Adam. It was the, the, the appearing of a man who was going to be given dominion over all the beasts. In our case, it's the return of Jesus Christ who will have dominion as the son of God over the beasts and the nations and the rulers around us. And so we have in Psalm 72, it's a Psalm all about the role of the king who is going to act wisely and justly, not like the world around us that acts selfishly for, for, prompt, for preeminence and for power, but this king is going to be the king of kings as we're told in Revelation 19 verse 16, Lord of lords. In Daniel 7, at the end of Daniel 7, this period of, 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 of prophecy that's about the beasts that are ruling the earth, then you've got the handing over of, of the kingdom back to the Most High and his representative, the Son. And he rules over the earth and he shows dominion over the beasts. And in the blueprint, you had Adam, who, who was created by God as his son, who ruled over the physical creation at the time. But in the outworking of the blueprint, you have the close of the sixth millennia, when the, when the Son of God returns, when the battle ensues for domination over the earth, when the Son of God becomes Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and that leads us into, one more quote before we move on, sorry. Um, we, again, we, we know that this is, this is what works in, in practicality, because if you turn with me to um, 1 Corinthians 15, jumping ahead of myself a little bit, because the next, the next day is a very exciting day. <coughs> um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and, and we are going to focus on a few select verses. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, where we read, and so it was written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. He was made a human being. The last man would be made a quickening spirit. So there was going to be something different between the, the Adam identified in Genesis 1 compared to the Adam that's identified as the son of God in the end of the sixth millennia. And then he says, "Howbeit that was not first which was spiritual, but that which was natural. So first the natural had to come and afterward that which was spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthly, and the second man is of the Lord from heaven. We're going to read in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of, 
twinkling of the eye in the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And then verse 57 to verse 58, and this is now the uh, the verse we just read, the introduction into the impact uh, on us of, of, of this blueprint of God. Um, but thanks be, verse 57, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so you have this, this clear indication for us that the first Adam was a symbol in the day of creation, a symbol for the second Adam that would come, who would do what he was supposed to do, who would exercise dominion over the beasts of the earth. Unfortunately, the first Adam allowed the beastly mind to exercise dominion over the mind of Adam and Eve. The second Adam will overcome that beastly instinct, he has already, and when he comes to be the son of God, the king of kings, the lord of lords, he will show dominion clearly over all the earth, and the reign of the beasts in day six will come to an end. And that introduces us to day seven, a very hopeful day, because we can see the effects of the reign of the beasts around us in the world today. The war-torn world, the world that has pestilence and sicknesses that nobody knows what to do anything about, a world that has violence and war, a world that is destroying the earth and not replenishing it. But at the introduction of Jesus Christ back to this earth, the return of the sun, when the sun rises again, we will have a different earth. We will has, as, have, have, as we're told in day seven, the day of rest, the seventh millennia. In Isaiah 65, if you'll turn with me there, please, that day of rest, the day of Jesus Christ being the ruler over the earth we will have a very different scenario. If I can find Isaiah. So Isaiah 65, and we're going to read again a few select verses, and we're going to see that the, the day of rest is, is an all-out impact across the whole world. There's an impact on the political sphere. There's an impact on people personally, and there is an impact on the environment. So, Isaiah 65, and commencing at verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that I create in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So, so this is a change politically. We hear that, that 
the, the dwelling place of the king of Jesus Christ, where, where he's going to sit on, as it was promised, the throne of his father David is going to be from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the entire earth, where joy and peace and the commandments and laws and righteousness will come from. But then we read a little bit further. There's also going to be a change to individuals. There shall be no more in verse 20. No more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die at a hundred. Now, if somebody lives to a hundred today, they get a, a letter from the queen. We're told that in the, in the day of rest, in that thousandth millennia, if somebody dies at a hundred, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be like they're an infant. There's going to be an elongation of life again. Um... And as we keep reading, but the sinner being a hundred years old uh, shall be cursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and they shall be fruit uh, and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build an, another and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of the tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And so you have this change to human beings and the way of life and their physical bodies. Then we're told, and it shall come to pass before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. So there's also a change in the relationship between human beings and God. There's a closeness. There's an intimacy between human beings and God. But not only that, there's, there's a change to the world, to, to the earth. To nature, to the environment, the wolf and the lamb in verse 25 shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like a, like a bullock and the dust shall be the serpent's meat and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. This is an all out change across the whole earth. It is truly a day of rest. It is a millennia where there are people who know and love God, who are teaching other people who've been, who've been confused for, for a long time, as we see in the world around us today. And there will be an enlightenment across the entire planet. Now, there's lots of other verses that we could go to. Isaiah 35 is about the, the physical change to the earth, the, the, the desert that blooms as the rose. But what we want to really focus on right now is how God's plan can impact us. See, Jesus Christ, we saw, will, show, will have physical, spiritual, um, political dominion over all the earth. But in Genesis 1 verse 26, Adam was also told to have dominion. He was told to rise above the mind of the beast and try and elevate the mind of God. And so for you and I, the command is no different. Jesus Christ did perform that perfectly, but we have the capacity to also know and understand and be like God and his son. And we're told in Genesis 1 verse 26 to show dominion over the animals of the earth, over the beasts. But then we're also told to multiply, to replenish the earth, to fill the earth, and that's why we're here doing what we do this evening, trying to teach others about what the word of God says, because we are here to try and help, to try and be those lights in the dark sky. 
We are to teach our own children, and we're supposed to teach everyone else around us in this dark world about the hope that God has in store. I have four sons. And when somebody comes to me and says, oh, don't they look just like their dad? I tell you what, I swell with pride. It makes me the happiest guy on earth in that moment. And that's exactly what God wants from us. He wants us to look like him. Not physically, but in character. He wants us to look like him. And Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of Hebrews, was the exact impress, the perfect image of his father in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. But we're also told that we should be in the image and likeness of our heavenly father. And if we are trying our best to know and understand who he is, to understand his blueprints for this earth, then the benefit to us, the real true depth of God's plan, and we won't go through all these quotes, but you can see highlighted in blue, is that he becomes our father and we become his children. All the way through the Bible, New Testament and old, are numerous quotes. I've only picked out, I think, about 20. Where, where God says, I will be their father and they will be my son. I will be their father and they will be my children. They will be my sons and my daughters again and again and again through the Bible. Because the real depth, the real meaningfulness of the plan of God for us is that we can have a perfect father. One who loves us. If we show love to him. If we adopt his character like his son did, if we try and emulate his characteristics like his son did. And so the command from Genesis 1 verse 26 right the way through to the end of the Bible is no different. Be like God. Show dominion over the carnal and be the spiritual. There's a common phrase, those who, who fail to plan, plan to fail. Now, God has a plan, and he executed it, and it has been working exactly as he wanted it to for the last 6,000 years, or almost the last 6,000 years. And it's going to continue to work the way he wants it to across the seventh millennia and forever when God is all in all, as we're told in the book of Corinthians. But we want to fall in line with that plan. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, we're told that his, in fact, we are. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath predestined us to practice. If you've got interest in knowing more about the plan of God, if you've got interest in having a father who is a perfect father, who you can rely on, who's consistent across generations and millennia, then it's worth looking more into this book before you. It's worth looking more into what those symbols and those words are that God has left on record for us to understand and connect with. Because we're told in Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Ladies and gentlemen, 
anyone here this evening who's got further interest in understanding this plan and the purpose of God, please talk to one of us here this evening who's, who's, who's trying to be a light shining in the dark sky. We would love to chat further. This was just, as I say, a scratching of the surface. There's so much more to learn and get excited about when it comes to looking at what God's 7,000 year plan is for this earth. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.